Today we begin a series in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. And so will you turn in your Bibles, first of all, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Our sermon text this morning is verses 1 to 11 of Ecclesiastes 1. Ecclesiastes is right after the book of Proverbs, right before the book of the Song of Songs. And if you're using our Pew Bible, it's at the bottom of page 477. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Following the reading of Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 11, we'll turn then to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, and I'll read verses 1 through 5, the first half, anyway, of verse 5. Revelation 21, 1 to 5. But we begin with Ecclesiastes. So let us hear the word of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done, so there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See this, it is new? Already it is existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also the later things which will occur, there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. And now from this we turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. John the Apostle is reporting what he sees in a vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. 
and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray as you would open our eyes to wonderful things from your law, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand these difficult things ahead of us in the book of Ecclesiastes. Build us up, we pray, in our knowledge, in our faith, and in our faithfulness. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. In the first book of the Kings, chapter 4, the Holy Spirit writes of King Solomon, Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men. Then Ethan the Ezrahite, Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Machol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke three thousand proverbs, and his songs were a thousand and five. And he spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals birds and creeping things and fish and men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom all of which is to say that long before there was such a thing as a renaissance King Solomon was very truly a renaissance man in addition to his prodigious accomplishments as a poet and songwriter, he was also a bona fide scientist. Solomon was a natural scientist. All his life, Solomon made empirical observations of the world around him. Observations on everything from life to love to laughter. He analyzed what he saw. He constructed hypotheses to explain what he saw. Put those hypotheses to the test. Came to some very candid observations and conclusions about the nature of reality. And best of all for us who live these 3,000 years later, Solomon reduced those conclusions to writing, some of which survive to the present day. The Song of Songs, for instance, the Proverbs, and this book we begin today. This morning we begin a new sermon series designed to take us into the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. 
King Solomon, who by the time he wrote this book was already King Solomon the Old, King Solomon the experienced veteran of life. He records in this book his observations and the tests he ran on them and the conclusions to which he came. And the results are remarkable. For Solomon's relentless, no-holds-barred pursuit of the unvarnished truth, this book, if there is any book of the Bible that does, this book resonates with people who are fed up with the shallow, superficial blather of this present age. It resonates with people who are fed up with the tacit cultural expectation that we all just mindlessly follow the endless parade of lockstep lemmings who are going over the intellectual cliff. People fed up with all these televised talking heads who push politically correct narratives and superficial slogans and the borrowing of other people's ideas, pushing such cheap paper money opinion for the much rarer solid gold of careful analysis. Ecclesiastes is a challenging book because it's a book for those who think. It's an Old Testament book and yet it never grows old. At least it never grows old as long as there are still people who think deeply about life's persistent questions. People who really believe that above all else, truth matters. The truth matters. It's largely a forgotten book in our present generation, but we really need to hear it and take it to heart. It's a challenging book intellectually, People reading the book of Ecclesiastes for the very first time have to figure out how they're actually going to interpret the thing. How they ought to understand it because this isn't like a lot of the other books of the Bible. This says some pretty unexpected things. We come to Ecclesiastes for the first time with certain expectations, of course, about what it's going to tell us certain presuppositions. After all, here it is in the Bible, in the very heart of the Bible. And so it's sure to couch the moral issues of life in the usual stark black and white moral contrast characteristic of the Bible. Right? We pick up this book and we think we're going to come away from it really no wiser than we were before. We're going to come away from it saying, I knew that's what it was going to say. Just more of the garden variety counsel of God. Do this, don't do that, which of course is a very shallow and superficial and prejudiced way to approach anything we read for the first time. And then we begin reading this first chapter of Ecclesiastes and we think, whoa, Wait a minute. This is like dust in the wind. This is bleak. This is 
way more complicated as a view of the world than I'm used to reading in the Bible. And it is complicated. It's complicated because it's reality. And reality doesn't come to us in easy, two-dimensional, black and white, easily understood cartoons. It's not the way life comes to us. It comes to us in all of its true colors and shades and textures. Remember Solomon as he writes this, he's not artificially superimposing his own theological presuppositions on what he observes. He's not trying to make everything he sees fit his construct. What he's doing in the book of Ecclesiastes is simply telling it like it is. It's calling it as he sees it. And looking back over his life as an old man, an old king, in fact, and therefore a man of considerable resources to fund his research... What he sees is this. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's his conclusion. And before we get to this surprising conclusion, we ought to consider that expression, the preacher. People often wonder why the author refers to himself not simply as Solomon, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, but as the preacher. In Hebrew, the title used is Koheleth, <clears throat> Koheleth for which preacher is a, actually a derivative meaning. Its more basic meaning is the one calling others together. Solomon is here calling others together. <clears throat> so a Koheleth is the one assembling the congregation to hear the word of God, which is exactly what Solomon did, you may remember, on that singularly memorable occasion of the dedication of the temple in Second Chronicles 5. Then Solomon assembled to Jerusalem, the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's households of the sons of Israel to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves to the king at the feast, that is, in the seventh month. So Solomon called them all together and the men of Israel came. And in fact, in all the annals of Israel's history, there had never been an assembly on the scale of this one, either before or since. The day the glory of God filled the temple, the day Solomon spoke, the day Solomon prayed, the day Solomon blessed the people, on that occasion, according to the seventh chapter of Second Chronicles, King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. 
Thus the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. So Solomon observed the feast at that time for seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great assembly, who came from the entrance of Hamath, that is, away up north, to the brook of Egypt, away down south. And on the eighth day they held a solemn assembly for the dedication of the altar they observed seven days, and the feast seven days. Then on the twenty-third day of the seventh month he sent the people to their tents, rejoicing and happy of heart because of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David and to Solomon and to his people Israel. Friends, there had never been an assembly of people like that assembly. And so its convener and its chief speaker came to be called not only King Solomon, but the great Koheleth, the convener, and even the preacher. So what this accomplished Renaissance man Solomon, the poet, songwriter, royal son of David, natural scientist, and even preacher, what he sees sizing up the world around him is vanity. Emptiness. It's meaningless. Everything he considers, everything he puts to the test, amounts to nothing more than a mere breath. A mere vapor. There's nothing here of lasting value. That sort of changes your perspective, doesn't it? When you realize how quickly everything is passing away. Nothing here of lasting value. His palace, his throne of ivory, his wealth, his gardens, his projects, his politics, his 700 wives and 300 concubines, life itself, they're all vanity. They're here for a moment and then they're gone. All of which is something people don't generally expect the Bible to say. And certainly don't want the Bible to say. So he invites us to take a closer look. He shows us the evidence of a life lived under the sun. A life lived with both feet firmly planted in this desperately fallen world. First of all, in verses 3 and 4, he directs our attention to the circularity of our life's work. Some of you have felt that, perhaps, in your life's work. Follows a predictable pattern, doesn't it? Pattern we're first told to expect on the day that Adam dropped his guard and fell into sin. On that day, the Lord God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground because it 
because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here's the vanity, the futility of it. For all that you put into your work every day, year after year, for all your financial planning, for all your daily commutes into work and then home again afterwards, for all your time spent away from family just to put food on the table, for all of that, you are generally able to discern little, if any, forward linear progress. Taxes and inflation, unexpected losses and expenses make your work seem more like life lived on a hamster wheel. In your life's work, you don't have the satisfaction of feeling that you have advanced the human condition. Sometimes that you haven't even advanced your own condition. You spend your efforts in vain. Let's say, for instance, that you're a farmer or even a gardener. Some of us are gardeners. Then you know a thing or two about weeds. You know a thing or two about pests. Here in South Texas, you know well about drought shortages of various kinds, and a thousand other things outside your control. A good year as a gardener or a farmer, a good year is one in which your harvest somehow exceeds all your expenditures over the past six months on seeds and tools and time and the labor of putting it all into the ground. Your work becomes the meaningless circle described in the old coal miner's song. 16 tons. You move 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. You keep working, and you're working yourself downward. And then you pass on your own debt to your heirs, the next generation. What advantage is there in that? And then six, uh, secondly, in verse 5, he looks at the literal circularity of the passage of time. The circularity of the passage of time. Also the sun rises and the sun sets. Hastening to its place, it rises there again. Never changes. Always the same dreary sameness, up in the east, down in the west, up in the east, down in the west, and the older you get, the faster the wheel spins, or seems to. You're another day older and deeper in debt. Thirdly, in verses 6 and 7, he considers the circularity of all the natural processes going on around us every day. For instance, the wind blows. On its circular course, the wind blows. You rake the grass clippings into a nice pile over here, and then when you go to get the wheelbarrow to pick them up, 
you come back and you find that the wind has blown and they're not there anymore. They're over here scattered around. And so you rake them up again. And before you can get to pick them up, the wind has blown again and made your work vain, futile. The wind blows, the water flows, all the rivers are flowing, they empty into the sea, the sea's never full. The water flows always downhill. In fact, every life cycle that you can imagine from the human to the planetary, marches onward in its steady, predictable course. A child is conceived and born, grows, marries, declines, and dies. Meanwhile, somewhere within that circle, another child is conceived and born and grows, and marries, and declines, and dies. Generation after generation after generation after generation. And meanwhile, every springtime blossoms into full summer regularly. And then full summer declines into fall and dies in the winter. Year after endless year, the pattern's always the same, and thoughtful minds have to ask, what's the point? What's the point? Because fourthly, in verses 8 to 11, he notes the insatiable need of the human soul for answers that satisfy. The insatiable need of the human soul for answers that satisfy, as well as our total inability to find them. What's this all signify? Our fathers never figured it out, so they weren't able to tell us. We're not able to figure it out, and so we have nothing solid to pass along to our children when they go looking for answers. This dreary sameness, the regularity that we see in nature, all things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. And so in this way, the Holy Spirit, by the pen of Solomon, forcibly opens our eyes to the plain unvarnished truth about human life lived under the sun and under the curse. Life lived under the sun and under the curse is one big, unending, wearisome circle of not getting anywhere. All these 60 or 70 or maybe 80 years amount to is one insignificant little life that came out of darkness, sputters briefly across the firmament of history, and then disappears again into darkness. That's not what we expect the Bible to be telling us. But in Ecclesiastes, it does. Why? Why does Ecclesiastes tell us these things? Why is this singular book of Ecclesiastes so important, not only to the church, but to all of humanity? 
let me tell you. It's important because the proud human heart has to have the props knocked out from under it. The longer I live, the more convinced I am that the vast majority of people, at least in the West and probably around the globe, the vast majority of people living today live their lives in this shallow, imaginary world of their own making. A totally imaginary world in which everything's just going to work out fine for us. A world in which I am always going to be as young and as strong and as good-looking as I am today. A world in which they'll always have a faithful life partner at their side. As for future uncertainties, well, as to the future, maybe if you just work a little harder, pray a little harder, put a little more aside, vote the right way. If you do all the right things, maybe luck will smile on you. Maybe you can create your own luck. That's imaginary. Dear ones, to the human soul, this shallowness, intellectual shallowness, is the deadly Iocane powder that you may have heard of in the 1987 movie Princess Bride. You won't detect it because it's tasteless, it's odorless, but it's deadly. It's poison, poison to the soul. It's a fantasy world from which the book of Ecclesiastes suddenly and rudely weans us by showing us life as it really is. Life under the curse as it really is. It is desperate, it is hard, and it's short. So why do we need to be awakened this way to the clear and present danger of a life lived under the sun, a life lived absolutely without reference to the saving work of God in Jesus Christ? Listen, the book of Ecclesiastes is 100% dead on target about this life we live under the sun. He's not speaking tongue-in-cheek. He's telling the truth. This doctrine is the one solid foundation on which the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for sinners can be built. The one background against which the bright hope of the gospel can be truly appreciated for the first time. If sinners are going to reckon the gospel of Jesus Christ as the one and only antidote that it is, the one and only bright hope for dying sinners who are short on time, then we have to be awakened to our real condition. This book of Ecclesiastes doesn't tell us the whole story, but it tells us a very important part of the story. That the ship that humanity is sailing on is going down fast. When life has no meaning for us, we're in very, very deep trouble. And Ecclesiastes does us the favor of showing us that. 
I want to make just a couple of applications as we conclude. The first application is about the exercise of knowledge. The exercise of knowledge. This relentless pursuit of the truth, wherever it might lead us, was never meant to provide something for the intellectual freezer of academia. That's not what this hunt for wisdom is about. It's not knowledge for knowledge's sake, because the Christian life isn't a life lived exclusively within that space between your ears. The Christian life is a life lived out here, out there, out in the real world, out in the open. The relentless pursuit of the truth, whether Solomon's pursuit of it or our pursuit of it, is so that we might behave and act wisely. Not stupidly anymore, but act wisely in this world, even as we await the new and better one. The one promised us in the New Testament, the one in which righteousness dwells. Our knowledge is to be lived out in the open. My second application I've already alluded to, and it's about the exercise of faith. That we can't fully appreciate the glorious free offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ until we've first come to terms with the sober reality of this fallen world in which and from which we're saved. Solomon lived at a, a discreet point of human history, didn't he? He's a man. So he lived at a discreet point on the timeline of history. He worked with the data that he had available to him under those historical constraints. Although he spoke truly, he was only able to know what was given him then to know. But 3,000 years have passed and the fragrant rose of redemption history has opened more fully than Solomon ever lived to see, hasn't it? In his quest for answers 3,000 years ago, Solomon saw not the world to come, but only the world that he had available to him. Now, you and I in Christ have the privilege of having a foot in each of two different worlds, very different worlds. This one that we know so well, that's so aptly described for us here by the wisest of men, one foot in this world. And we have a foot in the world that is promised us, wherein there shall no longer be any of these things, this futility, this meaninglessness, this mourning and crying and pain. We have a foot in the coming world where all these former things have passed away because 
He who sits on the throne makes all things new. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for so forcibly opening our eyes to the truth of this sin-cursed world in which we live. A world that is constantly dying, even as, as it is constantly bringing forth. We thank you that our hope does not and cannot rest here. We pray that you would shield us and our children from ever thinking that it does rest here in this world. Thank you that in Jesus Christ you have promised some much better things for your people. And we ask that you would put in our hearts to trust him with all of our hearts, to love him, to cleave to him, and to follow him. From this world into the coming one. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.